We are in the home stretch of this series called God's Name. Next Sunday, we'll wrap it up as we seek to apply God's name. I hope it's been a helpful series for you. It certainly has been helpful for me in deepening my sense of worship before the one who alone is God, getting to know him and his character a little bit better. Really, the purpose of this series throughout has been to know God a little bit better the way he reveals himself to us. And I dare say there is nothing more important than this, knowing God, not as we choose to project him as something, but as, they, as he actually chooses to reveal himself. I'm not sure if anything is more important than a proper knowledge of God as he chooses to reveal himself. And that's what we've been looking at over these past eight weeks. And again, we'll wrap up next Sunday from this foundational text of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which was so significant to the Hebrew people that God gives it to them. He gives his name and his attributes. And then the Hebrew people quote it back to God throughout the Old Testament, I think 15 or 16 times. It becomes this pillar that they go back to. They say, I know who God is. And I would encourage the same for us. Do we have a couple pillar ver verses on the character of God? Verses that we go back to regularly and say, this is who God is. I can count on this about my God. Maybe it'd be this one. Let's read it out loud together from the screen. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. Would you please join me online and here in this room? He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth. As we've seen over these past several weeks, the image of God that is portrayed in this passage is remarkable. We have these seven qualities of God that are noted in succession. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, which means like the source of all. He's the only one who ever was, the self-existent one. He's saying, all that I always was, you can count on me to always be. Yahweh, Yahweh. And then the compassionate and gracious God, who is slow to anger, and full of love and faithful. He's eager to forgive. All of these beautiful attributes. In fact, what you have there is seven consecutive attributes of God that we would all consider positive attributes. And then you have this eighth line, which as we read it, I don't know about you, but it's like, that kind of feels out of place, doesn't it? What's that doing in here? Do you have certain lines that you come to in the Bible and you kind of just skim over? Or ignore altogether? And say, I'm not going to think about that one right now. There are many of those kinds of verses in the Bible. 
And what I want to tell you here, though, this morning is there's a reason that final line, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Punishing children to the third and fourth for the parents' sins. There's a reason that's in here. There's a reason for every line in here. And part of the joy that we get, whoops, you can leave that there, Gary. Okay, thank you. Part of the joy that we get in studying and reading and learning from the scriptures across an entire lifetime is that those lines that seem difficult for us to understand at first, we get to unpack as we study the scriptures and we realize again and again there's a reason for them being in here. I'd like to ask you this morning as I begin this message to do something for me. Here's the favor I need to ask. Would you be an active participant this morning? Okay, okay, thank you. Josh Pierce, he's always in it. (laughs) I I, I need you to uh, to do this, um, to actively engage with me mentally. There, There are Sundays that you come in and you can kind of just passively receive it. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's Sundays where we just need to be ministered to in our soul. This is not one of those Sundays. If you're going to get what you need to get from this message, you need to choose to actively think and enter in and engage with me. And if you're a note taker, this is a really good Sunday to take notes. And if you're not a note taker, this is a really good Sunday to take notes. Because what we're going to do is wrestle with that final line in this passage as it relates to the wrath of God. We're going to wrestle with this biblical concept called the wrath of God. And if you're in a place here, though, this morning that you've come to church over the years, or maybe you're new to church, and maybe one of the reasons that you don't come to church very often is you've silently wondered, is God good? Or maybe you've come to church and you've sat in the pews and you've silently suffered through this question, is God good? I'm telling you, you've come to the right place though this morning. As we seek to unpack this idea in the final line of Exodus 34, 7, and even there I'm telling you, well, we're gonna see hints of God's mercy even in this passage. Now here's the obvious question. What kind of God are we talking about here that punishes children for their parents' and grandparents' sins. What in the world is going on there? I want to tell you on the front end that God is saying to Moses in a very Hebrew way, he's using Hebrew language here to introduce a vital part of his character, which is his justice. We're going to talk about justice, we're going to talk about punishment of sin, and talk about the wrath of God here. And it starts well with this final line, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now one of the foundations of our um, United States system, of our system of government in the United States, is our justice system, Right? We believe in justice, we believe in law and order in the United States, we expect our law enforcement to be just, we expect our judges to be just. We know our judges won't get it right 100% of the time, but that's what we expect from them, and we should. It's part of our nation, it's part of what we um, 
strive for, and really what makes the United States different from many other nations. I want to ask, like, how would you feel if a judge just let criminals go without any punishment? The criminals came and listed out all their crimes, and there was no punishment for them. The judge just said, oh, you're dismissed. How would we feel about a judge that would look at the crimes that were committed by, like, a Harvey Weinstein? or Derek Chauvin, and just say, oh, no big deal. We'll let that go. We would have no respect for such a judge, would we? And likewise, how would we feel about a God who turned a blind eye from sex traffickers or people who commit child abuse or a God who turned a blind eye from school shooters? We desperately need a God of justice. Indeed, what I want to tell you here today is that justice is part of God's love. Say that with me. Justice is part of God's love. One more time. Justice is part of God's love. If you don't have justice, you don't actually have love. Okay? If you don't have justice, all you have is some shallow feelings. Justice is part and parcel of God's love. And one day... Christ is going to come back to this world and he's going to bring justice completely. We have an image of that from Revelation chapter 21 in which Christ promises that while he came the first time into this world with humility, he will come the second time into this world with glory and power and justice in his hands and he will set this world to rights. Revelation 21 says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain anymore. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, (coughs) excuse me, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. In other words, I am making everything just. I'm setting the world to rights. I'm eliminating evil. I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, why will there be no more death or crying or pain? The reason is because every ounce of evil that is found in us and in every other person across this world will be eradicated. It will be no more because Jesus will have completely dealt with it you need to hear this really carefully. Either our sins will be paid for by Christ on the cross who was separated from God or our sins will be paid for as we are separated from God. Let me say it again. Either our sins will be paid for through Christ who endured separation from God or we will pay for our own sins as we endure separation from God. Because without justice, 
there's really no love. Now even so, admitting that God will punish the guilty, there's still this line in here, well, which is troubling, that God would punish children for the sins of their grandparents? Listen to me now, here's what this cannot mean. It cannot mean that kids are accountable for the sins of their parents. Now we know it can't mean that because the Bible says elsewhere in many other places that each person is responsible for their own sins. Each person is held accountable for their own sins. Ezekiel chapter 18, for example, says this, the child will not share in the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share in the guilt of the child. Each one will be responsible for their own misdeeds. A short time after God reveals his character to Moses in Exodus 34, over in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we see the same thing. It says, parents are not to be put to death for their children. Say a child commits a murder. It says, parents are not to be put to death for that, nor children put to death for the evil things that parents might do. Each will die for their own sin. So what we can know for sure is that Exodus 34.7 is not saying that a child is responsible for the sins of their parents. That would be unjust, wouldn't it? That would actually be unjust. It's not saying that. What it's saying is sin is dehumanizing and Yahweh will not wink at sin. He will commit to rooting it out in all of our lives. So I want to talk here for the remainder of our time about how God roots that out in our lives and how he uses this concept of justice. And we will kind of wrestle with this concept of God's wrath here though this morning, which is found a lot in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we tend to ignore it when we see it in the Bible. I want to help you deal with it. I don't want you to be scared of it. I don't want us as a church to ignore it. Say, I wish that wasn't there. I want us to look at four lines that would help us deal and develop a proper theology related to the justice and even the wrath of God. Here's the first the primary way that God speaks of wrath is a handing over to our own sinful choices. This is what you need to write down. The primary way that God speaks of wrath is a handing over to our own sinful choices. We tend to think of God's wrath as like this direct punishment that comes when someone steps out of line. So someone steps out of line and therefore they get a direct punishment from God and you get these prognosticators on Christian TV who see a hurricane down in New Orleans and they say, well these people in New Orleans must have done thus and such, which is terrible. Like we should never say those kinds of things, and it's an embarrassment to, to the church well, when people say those kinds of things, okay? That's plain God, which we should never do. And unfortunately, that's oftentimes the image of God's wrath that comes to our mind. It comes more from Greek mythology than it comes from the Bible. It's the Greek god Zeus who sends down lightning bolts from heaven as punishment to someone who steps out of line. And that's not it. One of the clearest descriptions of God's wrath is found in Romans chapter one, and it looks very different than the Greek god Zeus. 
Look at Romans 1.18 up on the screen. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, what tense is that written in? Somebody help me. Is that present or future tense? Present. So it's saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. There will be a time when Christ returns, as I've mentioned already, that he will come with glory and righteousness and justice and he will bring an end to all evil. But that says in the present tense that it's happening now. Interesting, how so? Well, as you go on in Romans 1, it says that the people exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we see this all the time, don't we? The people take a little bit of truth here and a little bit of truth here and a little bit of truth here and they mix it all together and they make their own pluralistic view of God, their own little portrait where they have their preferences that they begin to uphold as truth and God calls that a lie. And he goes on to say, we see it when people decide that they're gonna be the authority over sex. I'll be the authority over sex regardless of what God says. Or we see it, it says, when people exchange worship of the one true God who made creation for instead worship of creation. Exchanging the worship of the creator for the creation. And we see that all the time when people worship money or they worship the earth or they worship animals or whatever it might be. Okay, so that's how Paul unpacks it. And then from there, he speaks of how wrath is revealed from heaven. Listen to what what he says here in verse 24, 26 and following. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. You gotta follow me here. And I'd write this down. I would underline this if you have your Bible out right now. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Second time, God gave them over to shameful lusts case we didn't get it third time God gave them over to a depraved mind they have become filled with wickedness evil greed gossip and strife so what is wrath here as you hear that passage it's God saying okay have it your way that's what it is this is the primary meaning of wrath in the Bible It's God saying, okay, you want to worship the creation rather than the creator? Okay, you're welcome to do that, but it'll hurt you. It's God saying, you want to have sex your way and take authority over that and treat it like it's nothing at all, even though I've made it to be like the most powerful thing? You want to treat it like it's nothing? Okay, good luck with that. You you want to pervert and change truth? Have it your way, but you will experience natural consequences from that. It will hurt you. And this exact same language is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of God's wrath, which is expressed not in some angry outburst from heaven, but rather in his decision to give people what they want. It's not because he wants us to be destroyed. It's because he loves us so much that the only way he can actually have loving relationship with us is to genuinely give us free choices. God doesn't want to make robots. 
He wants us to enter into loving relationship with him in which we have free choices to follow him or not. Yes, when we first receive Christ as Savior, but then every single day as we follow him. And if we choose not to, then we'll experience some natural consequences of living outside of his boundaries. And that, my friends, is called God's wrath. A little bit different than the lightning bolt fell from heaven, right? I love the way uh, Love and Logic puts it. Did anyone uh, raise your kids or maybe experiment with your kids with a love and logic approach to parenting? Would you raise your hand if that's been you? Okay, see a number of hands in here. It's a great approach to, to parenting. And they actually describe really well this same idea of handing kids over. Here's from their website. The love in love and logic means that we love our kids so much that we're willing to set and enforce limits for them. This love also means that we do so with sincere compassion and empathy for them. The logic in love and logic happens when we allow children to make decisions, have affordable mistakes, and experience the logic, logical or natural, or natural consequences of those decisions. Our children learn Get this, our children learn that the quality of their lives depends on the quality of their choices. Ooh. Now is that what you think of when you think of wrath? This is a wise parent who says, kids, here are the boundaries. And my daughter, I will grieve. I will be so sad as you walk outside of these boundaries as a 16-year-old woman. But I have to help you learn to make your own choices, not just obey directions. And as you walk outside these boundaries, I grieve over that, but because I love you and I want you to be a free being who makes wise choices, I let you do so even sometimes when it really hurts you. In our house, we don't have a lot of rules. We have very few, in fact. But one of them is no lying of any kind. It's honesty and integrity in everything. We set this boundary for love and logic type reasons. Because inside of honesty and integrity, there's a whole lot of flourishing, right? And outside of honesty and integrity, there's not much flourishing. And so we want our kids to, to understand that when they live outside of that, and I have wonderful, honest kids, but if they live outside of that, what happens? It breaks trust, and then we end up losing relationships with people that we care about, and that becomes a logical, natural consequence that none of us want. Do you see? So God hands us over to our own choices in his wrath, he says, okay, have it your way. Now, number two, and more specific to Exodus chapter 34, God is telling Moses and he's telling us that parents' sins have consequences for their kids. Parents' sins have consequences for their kids. And this is rather obvious. We all know this to be the case. Listen to Jeremiah quoting from Exodus chapter 34 and adding a little bit of commentary. He says this, quoting Exodus 34, 6, you show love to thousands. Okay, that's God's love to thousands of generations. And then 
verse seven, but you bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Okay, so there's consequences from parents' sins that fall into the kids' laps. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct according to their conduct and as their deeds deserve. So each of us is rewarded by God according to our deeds, and yet at the same time, what this passage is saying is that the parents' choices have consequences for their kids. And we all know this to be true, don't we? Like we all know someone who has white-hot anger, And so we're not surprised when we've seen their white-hot anger over the course of decades when Johnny and Jenny start to fly off the handle as well. Because there's been consequences from parents that have fallen into the laps of Johnny and Jenny. And the same thing can be said in a hundred other examples. The same thing is true in my life. I sometimes see things that I do wrong and they appear in my kids. How about you? Anybody else? It's enough to make you want to hide in a corner. But this is the reality. There's this logical consequence to our actions as parents. In fact, neuroscience today is starting to reveal that neural networks are carved into our brains over time, and that as our kids observe and they learn from our behaviors, it's not just that they notice those and they start to do them themselves, it's that they begin to develop neural networks in their brains. Okay, like new neural networks are carved in our brains as we observe things from our parents and those memories get fixed in us over time, they literally become part of us. That's how powerful our, our actions are with our kids. And this is why it's all the more amazing when you see a young woman who, for example, has a mother who's an alcoholic and a grandmother who's an alcoholic And the reality is she was born with a tendency toward alcoholism. It's already written in her brain. And so the fact is, she's going to have a much greater set of temptations related to alcohol than I will have. And those will be really heavy temptations on a regular basis, which she will have to fight. Okay, I have other stuff that she doesn't have to fight. My own stuff from my parents and from my own childhood. Okay, we all have some of these. But how powerful it is when that young lady says, it stops with me. It stops with me. I'm going to fight nurture and I'm going to fight nature and I'm going to overcome those temptations and the natural things that have come to me from my parents, I'm going to fight against those And how much greater will be the reward for that young lady as she fights against what she has inherited and receives a better reward from God as a result? Okay, here's number three. Sin will be punished in every generation until it's gone. Okay, so parents' sins have consequences for their sins, but in addition, Exodus 34 is telling us that sin will be punished in every generation until it's finally gone. I get this insight from Pastor John Mark Comer when he writes, don't think because God punished your daddy for making money a God, you're off the hook for your own worship of money. In the same way that God punished your daddy for making money a God, he will also punish you for making money a God. 
Or, he goes on, don't think because God punished your mom for her gossip, you're off the hook for your own gossip. By the way, are these passed down as well? Oh, come on, somebody. Oh, they are. These are passed down as well. God will punish you the same way he punished mom or grandma, generation after generation, until it's gone. And this is actually what's meant by the third and the fourth generation. It's a Hebrew idiom, and we see this in different places in the Hebrew language, to punish one to the third and fourth is not saying that the kids are responsible for their parents' sins. It's saying God will punish this again and again across every generation until it's gone. It's much the same as our English idiom, I'm gonna bury it six feet under. What does that mean, to bury something six feet under? It means I'm gonna kill it. Like, till it's gone, I'm gonna be done with that. In the same way, to punish something to the third and fourth is saying, we're gonna work on this until it's absolutely dead and buried, till it's gone. And that's God's attitude toward sin, toward wickedness, toward rebellion. We have a God who never says, well, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. We have a God who never says, boys will be boys. He doesn't say that. We have a God who does not treat sin in a laissez-faire manner. He will exact justice over our sins one way or another. Now finally, and most importantly though this morning, here's the good news. God's wrath against sin was poured on Christ so that his mercy can be poured on you. Okay, let's, let's take a deep breath. God's wrath against sin was ultimately poured on Christ so that his mercy can be poured on you and me. It's the compassionate and the gracious God who's slow to anger, who's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who is eager to forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin. And in all of that, he has this beautiful, fully-orbed character that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Are you thankful for the justice of God? Would you just say with me, thank you, God, for your justice? Thank you, God, for your justice. Like, we don't want just God's mercy outside of his justice. We want to thank God for his justice as well. But notice here the connection, Bob, between verses 6 and 7. It says, maintaining love to thousands and punishing to the third and fourth. The word generation is not even in the original Hebrew there in Exodus chapter 34. Generation is not even written there. It is implied but it would be implied in the same way for third and fourth generation as it would be for a thousand generations. So imagine with me here that you have a scale in front of you. You have the love of God, the mercy of God, the hesed of God to a thousand generations on one side of the scale, and then you can picture in your mind as well another side of the scale that has the justice of God. And both things are there in God's fully orbed character. So you have this fulcrum in front of you. You think of Lady Liberty with the fulcrum in her hand. But now imagine this portrait that God is trying to create for us 
of hesed love to a thousand generations as opposed to punishment to the third and fourth, what you see there is a portrait of a fulcrum, a scale that looks a little bit more like this. You have the heaviness, you have the weight of God's mercy on one side, which is so much heavier, so much weightier than God's justice, which falls on the other side. That they're both there, that God is fully just and he's fully merciful, but in his character, he's actually more eager to give mercy than he is to give justice. Which is why, in his self-revelation, he starts with these seven positive attributes, followed by this one kind of scary attribute, which is actually good too. I love the way the book of James puts it. The brother of Jesus, he says simply, mercy triumphs over justice. Ooh, that's so good. That yes, God is just. And he is angry with my sin and rebellion and wickedness. But in his mercy, he desires to forgive me. Yahweh is just. And so we look forward to a better tomorrow. And Yahweh is merciful. And so he's loving and forgiving to each of us in a way that humans never would be. Even here, guys, in Exodus 34, 7, we have this imagery that, that God is good. That you can count on the goodness of his character and that justice is a piece of that. This justice and this mercy come together most profoundly for us on the cross of Jesus, don't they? When we look at the cross of Jesus, we shouldn't just think of love. We shouldn't just think of God's forgiveness and his mercy. We should also think about God's justice against sin, starting with us. And as we look on the cross, we would remember that God treats our sin and rebellion and wickedness with utter severity. But he chooses to pour his wrath upon Jesus so that he would pour his mercy on us. That he exacts his justice on Jesus so he would exact his mercy on you and me if we receive him by faith. That he maintains his justice while simultaneously maintaining his mercy and his love, extending forgiveness to all of us. All of that comes together at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps the response to all of that would be a very honest reckoning. That we look at the cross and we look at ourselves in the mirror as it were and we say, God, here's where I'm missing the mark. I'm lazy. I'm lazy spiritually. I'm so full of ego. I get too much anger in here. I'm prideful. I don't guard my eyes. I'm lustful. I'm constantly comparing other people to myself and sizing myself up compared to them so I can put them down. I'm judgmental. I really don't care about other people. I care about getting my needs met. I'm after me, myself, and I. And we should do business with those. 
We should look upon the cross and do business with those. And we should recognize that those were big enough that Jesus took them upon his shoulders. And Jesus took them upon his shoulders in order to forgive you and bring you back to God. This is our God. It's the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Maintain his love to thousands. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But because he's so good, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Here's what I want to do as we close. I'm going to invite the band to come forward right now. We're going to wrap up in a little different way. And um, I'm going to ask the band just to play instrumentally in the background for a few moments. And maybe you would reflect upon something that you've heard today or maybe last Sunday. And if you've endured both of these messages the last two weeks, God bless you and keep you. Because they've been heavy messages, haven't they? And I'm not sorry. I am not sorry. To sit and wrestle with the forgiveness of God and what it means to forgive other people is a good thing for us to do. And to sit and wrestle with the wrath of God and to consider the fact that one way or another, one way or another, your sins will be paid for is a really good thing for us to do. And so we're going to kind of leave the altar open here as Matt and the team play quietly in the background. And maybe there's something that this has triggered over the last couple of weeks and you just want to come forward and you want to look upon the cross and you want to pray or you want to cry out to God, you're welcome to come forward and do that. We have prayer partners will come join you up here. Maybe a family member will want to come with you and pray for you. By all means, do that. With 20, 25 people did that in front of first service. Praise God for healing that is happening. God desires to heal broken hearts. And the main thing that breaks our hearts is sin. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are such a good God. That you are not weak. We praise you, God, that you are loving. And we praise you, God, that you are just. We thank you, God, that you exact justice on yourself. Jesus, you take it all under your shoulders so that you can extend loving forgiveness to each of us by name. And so, Father, we just ask you right now, what are the things that we need to be really honest about in our hearts? What do we need to turn from right now? Where do we need to humble ourselves right now? Where do we need to say, Lord God, would you please forgive me right now? Father, would you please forgive me of my greed, my intense ego, the fact that I really don't care too much about other people. Would you forgive me for my laziness? Would you forgive me for my lust, my desire for glory? What might it be for you? 
Father, would you give us the courage to sit in that? Not to try to escape it too quickly, but to sit in the reality that you hate those, that you do not wink at our sin, but you desire us to come to you with our failures. And you desire to give us forgiveness instead. We glorify your name, Lord Jesus. We thank you for taking it all upon the cross. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray together. Amen.